Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by the Tip Top Cafe. It's that time of year again, so before hearing the good news from Punxsutawney Phil, come stuff your face with coffee and pastries at the Tip Top Cafe. How's it going? I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is the Pestle where we analyze films and look for, I don't know, ways to get better as uh, filmmakers and storytellers and movie enthusiasts. I try to watch like a new movie a day, which I don't succeed, you know, nearly as often. So I'm not like watching 365 new movies a year, but I, I try. I might, you know, do at least between four to six movies a, a, a week. I mean, that's that's impressive, dude. Yeah, and it, it feels a little bit like having to get wean yourself off of fast food. Like, oh, I've been eating a lot of Taco Bell, and hey, Taco Bell's delicious. But once you have too much of that, right, it's hard to appreciate, you know, your asparagus and roasted carrots. Like, they just lose. And so having to sit down and watch movies is a really great way. It's almost like reading a book. It requires just a lot more attention and recall and patience. And I love that. I don't know, forcing myself to instill those kind of values in me. Do you watch a lot of the new stuff? Uh, (laughs) Leading question. (laughs) You know, normally, yes. But lately I've been pretty, I wouldn't call myself busy, just like, involved where I just don't, I don't have the time, you know, I'm my, if it's it's late at night after I've, well, if, you know, if I've just put the kids to sleep and maybe I'm doing like, so right now I'm building a studio in my backyard and that's taking up all my time. And then at night I'm researching what the heck I'm going to do tomorrow on it because I don't know what I'm doing. And so, so it's just taking up all my time. So I haven't been able to watch anything leading up to the start of building this and then building it, you know, this whole week. And and everything. But I usually, yes, I usually try to watch new things, but I like to be referred to things, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just, oh, that looks good. Watch it. Because then I start relying too much on Netflix and I just, I don't want to be fed. It becomes inefficient stuff. <laughs> it becomes a very inefficient. Yeah. And inefficient. Yeah. Very, very much so. I mean, you know, because, because there are, there are scenarios where, you know, there are films that I'll, that I'll watch that we're going to, cover where at the beginning I'm like, Oh, this, I don't want to watch this like this. I'm not going to like this. And then maybe by the end, I'm glad I watched it. It was good, but I don't have the patience for that unless somebody has told me, Hey dude, you should watch this. It's just like a vote of confidence that I can give an hour and a half or two hours to this thing rather than just taking a chance. And sometimes I do, but lately I just, you know, my time has been very precious to me. So I, have been like protective of it, I guess, you know, which is good and bad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I remember a while back, I, we, I think we all have this habit of adding things to our Netflix list, our queue. And a while back, they used to tell you how many things were in your list. Like they, they gave you a number. They don't, they don't do that anymore. But at the time I was like, man, I'm up to whatever, 200 movies and TV shows. I need to whittle this down. I need to stop adding things. And I, Spent like the next, I don't know, two or three months literally watching everything in there that I hadn't seen before. And it was, 
mildly satisfying um the little neuro neurotic person and that lives inside me but also i learned a lot of things that should not have been on my list <laughs> like <laughs> it's just part of the fun i will say so this is airing the week after the election i will uh, just want to you know congratulate or give condolences to everyone you know for the victory and or loss uh, of your favorite or and or uh, hated candidate and so <laughs> and so this is like still mid-october this is october 16th we're recording this hey, and yeah. this, man a couple of days ago i got a uh, hannah sent me a, a postcard that she hand hannah did? Uh, handmade effectively yeah hannah did she sent me wow. this amazing beautiful painting she had asked me like hey what's your favorite you know she had put out a call on her her insta and was like hey if anybody wants a, a postcard let me know and i'll send you one and i, I was like yeah the one. i just assumed that she was gonna like print out like a hundred postcards of whatever uh you know her favorite picture was or something but after i said yeah send me one and she came back and was like yeah what what do you love what what do you love in nature and i was like you know i love water i love mist and fog or whatever and it took and she painted like i think in watercolor like she painted a, a custom like postcard and it's gorgeous and and this is the point that i'm i'm driving to first of all obviously you know i thanked her and uh, it was just absolutely you know melting but on the back she she like wrote a poem and it, i'm pretty sure it was an original poem i've never read this before uh, not that i have a mental you know complete memory of every poem ever written but i have been writing todd poems poetry since i don't know like six or seven years old like i've been you know for most of my life and i have never written a poem as good as the one she wrote and it was just one of those <laughs> things where you're like damn some people really just got it and so i don't know about you but i'm like really impressed and damn we got some talented peeps in our audience is all i'm saying so yeah hannah you're amazing i can't can i mean can you read it to me at some point it doesn't have to be on air I will. Okay. No, it's just for you. Sure. Okay. I will share it only with you for otherwise it's really just for me, but I will post. The, I uh, totally get it. I'll, I'll post the, uh, the picture in the, the show notes though, and, and tag her so that, uh, I, I believe she's a photographer and her yeah. Insta is filled with amazing, you know, photography. So I'll link that mm -hmm. and a big thank you. But yes, I will read you the poem after, That's amazing. after we finish uh, and we wrap. Sweet. You'll, and you'll oh, be the only other person. Me. You'll be the third. <laughs> wow. Well, you don't have to. You can keep I will. It for yourself, no, I'll be happy to. Just I'm just so intrigued. At least one I, other I love person poetry. can witness just how absolutely fantastic her writing is. I love her new haircut. Dude, doesn't it look? Oh, it looks so good. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, she's crushing it. Yeah. So what are we going to cover today, man? Today, we're going to do a film that probably most people haven't heard of, mm. but they should. It's called Primer. So if you haven't seen this movie, pause the episode and go watch it. Where can they get it? Uh, uh, is it on? It was on. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it is right now, but it I don't think pops so. Up. It's one of these little indie darlings that gets a lot of love and will occasionally pop up. Yeah, I'm checking. I don't know if you're already on it, but I'm checking Just Watch. And it's no, you can rent it at a bunch of places for, you know, three bucks. Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, all the usual suspects. Uh, and of course, Apple yeah. TV charges four dollars because because it's it's Apple and Apple. Oh, it's, oh, God, <laughs> you, you hear what they're doing with the new phone? Man. No. What are they doing? Oh, to, to save on shipping. Right. 
they're they're going to include a cable, but not the the plug. So just a USB port. <laughs> just the USB cable. Uh, and it's a US and it's a Thunderbolt to USB three. You know what else? Since we're talking about it's really like, annoying big tech companies, I've just bought and I just got in the mail. I haven't even opened it yet. The new Oculus Quest two. And apparently you have to log in through your Facebook account. Like you can't just put it on and use it like any other hardware. You, <laughs> you have to literally tie it to. And I really hate that kind of stuff. I passionately, if I'd really understood that before, I ordered it. I would not have ordered it because I just feel like the man is going to be tracking me. I don't know. I'm not like this tinfoil hat kind of person, but that stuff is just really, really annoying. I, I, I like privacy and generally yeah. for a company. Like I don't even run searches on my, on my Google Chrome. Like I run all my searches in, in incognito, like, Oh, Hey, here's a barbecue recipe recipe that I want to look up incognito. I'm looking that up because I don't like them building and I'm sure they're still collecting that data, but it's not supposed to be directly tied to my account. And so I don't know, that's my high level of annoyances. Don't get me started on the TSA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. I've heard, I know I've flown with you before. Ooh, doggy. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to cover primer and along the way, we'll talk about a bunch of things for sure. Cinematography, specifically shooting ratios. Uh, we'll talk about audio, how to sell a location. Uh, we'll discuss some of the story and writing, advancing the story off screen. But I think the biggest takeaway is going to be a discussion on low budget filmmaking and other such stuff and things and stuff. And the synopsis of, of the film. Remember, there's going to be spoilers. So please watch this if you haven't seen it. Four friends fledgling slash fledgling entrepreneurs knowing that there's something bigger and more innovative than the different error checking devices they've built wrestle over their new invention written and directed by Shane Carruth screenplay by Matthew Michael Carnahan Drew Goddard and Damon Lindelof starring Shane Carruth as Aaron David Sullivan as Abe Samantha Thompson as Rachel and Carrie Crawford as Kara Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this, and you're going to listen, and you're going to stay on the line, and you're not going to interrupt. You're not going to speak for any reason. Some of this you know. I'm going to start at the top of the page. Meticulous. Yes. Methodical. Educated. They were these things. Nothing extreme. Like anyone, they varied. There were days of mistakes and laziness and infighting. And there were days, good days, when by anyone's judgment, they would have to be considered clever. No one would say that what they were doing was complicated. It wouldn't even be considered new, except for maybe in the geological sense. They took from their surroundings what was needed and made of it something more. So, I could have picked a much better clip, but I'm apparently falling on the job. So... That is just as good as anything, because I think for, I don't know, I have so many thoughts. What are you going to, what are you going to pull? I mean, really? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like everything's going to feel out of context and without yeah. enough information to a large degree. Yeah. So I think you've seen it twice now. <laughs> that's Yeah, I've seen it twice. I think there is a benefit. I know you wanted to watch it another time before we recorded this episode, but I think there is some benefit for the audience who may only watch it once and having yeah. your perspective align with theirs might be of some use. 
So what is that? What's your takeaway? How do you feel after finishing this thing? So anytime that someone tells you they don't understand a film or like they don't get it, that always for me, that's like a challenge. It's like, really? Okay, I'm I got this right. And I still don't got it. You know, I knew going in that I didn't really get everything the first time that I saw it. And I so I paid very close attention and I still there's just there's so many loopholes and and talking about, you know, times to get in the box and times to get out. And then they they don't give you too much exposition on what exactly happens. It's there's so many holes on purpose Mm -hmm. and they leave that to you to figure it out. It's when you're talking about time travel movies, that is the way to do it. You don't spoon fed people, spoon feed people. This movie will stick with you because you're trying to, you want to understand it. Right. And it's not, it's the other cool thing is that it's not two and a half hours long. (laughs) So it's not, it's an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. And so it's not, exhausting you know you get in you're it's a there's a build-up and then you're like what you know a mind twist and then it drags you along and you're just like what 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 and then it's over and you're kind of left thinking what the hell happened or how did that all happen i need to go watch this again to try to see if i understand really understand it and then you'll watch it again and you might understand a little bit more, but you probably won't get it all. I love that, that kind of movie. I love it. This one in particular is really great because it's an indie film where you, you know, you had some guys who just made it right. They had this idea and they just made the movie. And to know that is, it just is mind blowing that this movie was like, what was the budget? Oh, like less than seven grand. Less than seven grand, yeah. $7,000. Oh my God. I mean, they had to call in a million favors. I'm know? sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously none of the actors are getting paid, but, but anyway, I thought the acting was really good. I thought the writing was brilliant because of its simplicity. Uh, I thought the props were brilliant because of their simplicity. It, the cinema, let me talk about the cinematography for a second, because there is a, big difference between I still cannot tell you uh, you know I've worked with with Alexa cameras I've worked with red cameras I've worked with Canon cameras I've worked with you know a lot of different cameras as you have and I cannot tell you how to get the feeling of a shot that they get in like Joker right mm. Or in, you know, like in a, in, let's call Joker a medium budget film because they spent like 50, $50 million on that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. So to g- get a shot like that has that kind of feel and, and emotion in it, I cannot tell you how to get that. Now I know they used like really nice cameras, but here's the thing. That's why I'm comparing, you know, that movie to this movie. They probably, I don't know what they used. Do you know what they used? Super 16 film. Yeah. Okay. This was uh, released in 2004, just for reference. Right. There is just something that is, it's beyond the camera that a a good cinematographer can capture that translates to 
the feeling of an actual movie. That's the best way I can say it. You have TV, which doesn't translate to the feeling of a movie. You have most indie films, 99% of indie films don't translate to the feeling of a movie. And then you have actual movies that you go and see in the theater. And sometimes those don't always translate to the feeling of a movie, but a lot of times they do, you know. So how could they pull off the feeling of I'm watching a movie, right? Like, you know, kind of that same level, you know, of emotion. I'm not talking about quality even. Mm -hmm. That's the weird thing. I don't even know how I'm phrasing this question to you. <laughs> it's just, and I've always felt this. I've always felt like how, how is that accomplished to get that? And it, and I think it dawned on me with this film, watching this film again, that, that it's not just about the camera and it's not just about the person behind it. It's about all of it. I could use a 5D and go out and film something. And if I get the right angle of the right person or thing doing the right thing, tied together with all the rest of the things, that's the other part of it. It's like, it can't just be like, here's a good scene looking scene and here's a crappy looking scene, like all together. And then you have this feeling of this is a movie. And that's what I think they did so well in this film. It, you know, yeah, these are actors that you don't know. So like you have to end up, they have to pull you in so that you relate to them, right? So they have to be good actors. The dialogue has to be good and pointed and important. There can't be any fluff. And the story itself has to be enticing to draw you in. And they do all of that. It's just, it's really unbelievable I think the Super 16 helps because it gives it that kind of raw feel, mm -hmm. which it has the whole time. I mean, I didn't know they shot it in Super 16, but I totally can see that now. Yeah. But like certain angles, like when they go into the to the U-Haul and they're, you know, going to open the the front gate or whatever the to their their unit, you know, like the low shot of the bottom of it. And then they the hand like pulls it up. Like those are the kinds of little things you get this one little second of that or one little second of that. And it, you can use all of it to tie everything together. It's like, you're constantly establishing where you are in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And they do that. So, so well, whoever, yeah. Who, who shot this? Who did we say shot this? Well, that's the hilarious thing. I mean, this was such a low budget know. thing. They didn't have, if you actually look at the credits, you'll see that Shank Ruth is effectively everything, but even some of the actors are listed as camera operators like it, that's it, amazing yeah it reminds me of us making off of zombies but obviously times a million yeah and where you know sometimes you and i are both in the shot and so we can't operate and it's like you just put it on his sticks yeah well you, you you hand it to someone else you're like hey uh can you just do this <laughs> like i'm going to show you the move and now you do the move and he would. And what's outrageous about this film, and I think one of the many reasons why it's this, you know, it's a Hollywood darling of a film like it was made for seven grand. And the reason I even knew about this film was I was watching the uh, Independent Spirit Awards that I believe air the night before the Oscars. And it's basically a big tent, you know, more or less that takes place, you know, in the downtown L.A. somewhere, I guess. And it's changed a lot, I'm sure, over, you know, since, you know, 2005, whenever that was hosted. But effectively, this was just kind of what up for one of the best pictures because 
of the fact that it was made for so little money. This, you know, it's very much a El Mariachi and some other films like that, that people made for, you know, nickels. And then the other part that's just absolutely, absolutely ridiculous is the shooting ratio on this thing. And if you don't know what a shooting ratio is, imagine you, you're going to make a, a 10 minute film and you shoot a hundred minutes worth of footage. Now you have a shooting ratio of one to 10, right? Because mm-hmm. you used 10% of your footage for the final edit. And a, a 10 to one ratio is pretty normal. I would say in a lot of films, you know, if, if you shoot maybe a lot of whatever slow-mo or a lot of coverage, uh, maybe multiple cameras, 20 to one isn't out of the question. This film, and I'm just trying to give you a frame of reference, a documentary, documentary, depending on your, your oh, style, man. could be 100 to 1. Like 100 to 1, yeah. It's just absolutely insane when you think about all the, the B-roll and the, the long interviews that don't make it into the final, et cetera, et cetera. And so this film had a shooting ratio that was effectively 1 to 1. What? He shot, I want to say he shot like 79 minutes worth of footage. And this is a 77 minute film. <laughs> if so you like literally everything is one take. Yeah. He would rehearse. And I know a, a stupid amount about this film, not everything, everything, but a lot. And he would effectively just rehearse, you know, 40, 50 times until he liked everyone's performance. And then he would capture that angle. And then, you know, move the camera to the next angle, rehearse, 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 rehearse. Because uh, one of the big things that he was going after was this feeling of inventors in the garage, you know, Steve Jobs and Wozniak in the garage creating something. And he wanted, you know, to kind of capture that feel. And that's why the dialogue is so low tone and fast and shop talk, right? We don't always understand what they're saying. But like you said, we understand their significance there and that they're saying something important. And they usually reiterate or hammer something just enough that, you know, you you understand a little bit, you have some context of what's happening, just enough to kind of keep up with the next story point. And so, A lot of that he wanted to make sure. And he said that the only reason that he cast himself in this film was he couldn't find an actor that would not chew on the lines like an actor. Like this isn't Macbeth. You're not supposed to, you know, spew it forth. You're supposed to throw it away. This is all engineers talking to each other. Not everything's significant. It's not like, oh, my God, you know, this thing, it's proteins, molecules building up. No, it's just engineers talk to each other in this very specific way where they're constantly making sure they're following each other right there it's very a laborious process of making sure the clarity is there in your communication with one another Uh, and he wanted to capture that kind of fast and also specific tone and obviously he absolutely nailed that i don't know if he was an engineer himself i've heard that before i haven't ever actually verified it to be honest and so whenever you're shooting like that though when you're shooting for a one to one ratio, it also means and I think this will, you know, add on to, you know, your 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 thoughts and your your point that you're making about why this feels like a film, even though it was made for nothing. And that's because he thought through every single shot. He knew exactly what the what the scene was going to look like before he shot it. Now, I think that also came with some penalties. There are certain things that looking back, I would be highly surprised if he said, man, I really would have liked an extra five seconds on that shot. (laughs) 
there's scenes where you can see him say cut, even though they cut the audio out. But if you know what you're looking for, you'll actually see him say cut on screen because he needed a little bit more tail in that shot. And that's a no, that's a film term, by the way, folks, if you're looking at a clip and you might say to your editor, can we get a little more head or can we get a little more tail on that on that shot? And they're just saying extend the beginning or extend the end of that shot. That's head and tail. And so there's shots where you can see him say cut. And you're just like, yeah, I know he would have loved to. I need to go back and look what shots were that. (laughs) I need to go back and look. Yeah, I'm not even sure I would have to. It's one of the shots in the garage. It's one of the shots in the garage where Mm -hmm. he's sitting on camera thinking and it's just very subtle. You can just see his mouth move cut. (laughs) And so, wow. But there's a lot of those kind of moments where I'm like, yeah, an extra 10 seconds on that shot would have helped you dip to black to help create the transition or passage of time a little bit smoother because there's one shot in there that and. Here's the fun thing I think about this movie is because of how meticulously put together it is, given the constraints of budget, which to some degree is, like I'm saying, like a self-inflicted gunshot wound, like an extra grand could have made this a little bit better of a film. But it also, you know, speaks to the spirit of filmmaking. And I think that's why, you know, it's so well beloved because it is an excellently laid out story that you have to work for. And it's 90 percent there there's that extra 10% that I'm like, man, an extra 10 or 15 minutes of this thing, you can flesh out certain story points like the the gunman and the party could have used a little extra detail or setup before that payoff. And yeah. it just gives you this feeling of, oh, I missed it. I didn't quite understand where this moment came from. And it still works. I don't think it's anything that he should hang his ha- head on. But I think it's the kind of thing where he could have and maybe should have remade this movie with a budget like this movie with five million dollars suddenly becomes an hour and 40 minute film that really knocks your socks off uh, or even a sequel i think this would be a great sequel because it ends on a really interesting note and he could follow this up at any point and make a make a sequel that follows the the i don't want to call him the clone but one of the original errands that's now going and setting up a whole new fucking shop with, you know, time boxes that extend, you know, every meter on the meter. <laughs> like it's such a good, uh, scene. so I'm sorry. I'm like chasing my tail all over the place here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so great. there, there's these, there's a shot though, that I think hurts the story a little bit when early on, whenever they're still kind of figuring out what the box is trying to do before they understand that, it's creating a loop that is traveling on. They open the the box and then we just cut to black and then we see him wake up on the floor and you're right. just like, what did they get knocked out? Like it, the way it's cut, the way it's edited makes it feel like there was something very, very screwed up that happened with machine. There was a bad interaction with the machine. And I think that was just bad storytelling. I think uh, my impression is, He's waking up on the floor because he's just tired from working all the time. He doesn't even know what time of day it is, right? But the the edit there creates a different impression. The edit creates an impression that he lost time itself yeah. because of the machine, not because that's, that's not what happened. No, no, that's not. And that's yeah. And huh. so I think an extra you know five or ten seconds on that last shot, you can dissolve. And then probably don't have the guy waking up on his floor without commenting on why he's waking up on the floor. Yeah. It just creates a little extra confusion um, that isn't real. I mean, you could argue that it's servicing the story, I guess, if, you're, if your goal is, you know, maximum 
awareness from the viewer because now we're like, wait, what just happened? You're definitely making me sit up and pay attention more. But there's no real payoff from that moment, I guess. And so throughout the film, there's all the, all kinds of those things that pop up. There's a lot of you can tell this the he's not a on the one hand, he does some really, really amazing cinematography. It, when you consider he's not a filmmaker who who made this of course you run a marathon you're a marathoner it doesn't matter if you came in last if you made a yeah. film he's a filmmaker you know i'm not by yeah. his standards like i've never made a movie so i yeah, am yeah. absolutely in awe of everything about this movie but it also is one of those things where you're looking at it and you're like man there's color issues all over the place like yeah, right, right. all over the place just color issues there's you know focus issues and i don't think the focus issues hurt that much when they do pop up i i think it adds a little bit to the disorientation and so i think it plays well enough into the story that it doesn't hurt anything there's port holding not just vignetting uh, and there's a difference so sometimes if the lens that is on your camera isn't big enough to fit entirely over the sensor that's capturing the image. If the lens isn't big enough to cover the sensor, then you might get what's called vignetting. That's kind of the the corners of the the sensor being covered up a little bit by by the lens. And so a light vignette is just kind of a, a grade, right? We I think generally we're familiar with vignettes on a picture, right? We just kind of yeah, yeah. lightly the corners are black grayed out. Yeah. Just a little bit. Just a little Baited. bit. Portholing is when the a really good chunk of the uh this the sensor is actually blocked off like it's not just picking up a little shadow from the lens it's uh it's being blocked entirely and that's where you have hard black on the corners and there's Mm -hmm. i don't know 10 shots like that that are on there and that's fine like it doesn't bother me to be completely frank i think it adds a little bit to the darling aspect of this movie as a filmmaker watching it i would add uh, and i don't think the audience is hurting at all from it just because you're so busy trying to focus and understand what's happening yeah. on screen you're not losing i missed anything. all of that yeah exactly i missed all that you're just so dialed in yeah and that's awesome and in terms of low budget filmmaking he does so many smart things there's this beautiful visual effects shot that he inserts here and the other part of this that is why it's so beloved is because for $7,000, he made a, a pretty high concept sci-fi film. Sci-fis are absolutely destroyed in budget. You can't They're do expensive. that. <laughs> you can't make yeah. a sci-fi film for pe- pennies, uh, for peanuts. That's That doesn't happen. And he did that. And he did just enough to sell it, right? Like you said, the the, the set design with those boxes nothing it costs absolutely nothing but it adds to this this idea and it's perfect because he the the story is very much benefiting production because he made a story about broke engineers inventing something they have no money for nice things and so you don't need to go and rent or buy or you know cajole your way into nice things it's okay to go grab a carburetor out of a car parts you know yard a junkyard and then now that's a prop you know they're now looks like they're stealing a carburetor off a car it works and you imply all these things right they imply that they're taking copper tubing off the fridge we never see that happening but in our mind it did like suddenly it's playing. Uh, yeah. The story he wrote played perfectly into his production needs, which were I need maximum for nothing. <laughs> Just like which an engineer. So yeah. Yeah. It's genius. And, you know, he never, so he never needed all these really luxurious set designs. I mean, he needed what PVC pipe and wires spitting out everywhere. 
cool. <laughs> That's, you know, 10 bucks to build yeah. a box. <laughs> Genius. So awesome. But the, the, the visual effects shot that I really loved that it just kind of gets swallowed up in the, the, the story is whenever they're first at the very beginning, probably 10 minutes in, they're, they're testing that little device. And he goes and grabs, you know, a hole puncher, empties all the, the paper holes out of it. And he floats them on top of the, the device and they kind of suspend in the air. Well, they, this is so smart. So he shot it once with his camcorder and then he pulled his camcorder into after effects which this was an early edition i'm sure of after effects or whatever visual effects program i think it was after effects and created the shot like okay i i just need to create a bunch of little white circles floating and i'll add you know some opacity or whatever or remove some opacity and then he uploaded that clip the visual effects clip back into the camcorder and then played it back while he recorded everything and did a rack focus on Super 16. So now we're going to redo this shot again, except now for the for film. And we're going to dolly over as we're watching this guy carry these things. And in the background, out of focus, he's just empty handed, right? Just dropping nothing. And now but now we're racking focus to the LCD screen that's playing back the visual effects shot. Oh, and so he's able to capture in camera this freaking visual effects shot. It's freaking genius. Holy. That's crap. amazing. That just blew my mind. Really? <laughs> wow. How smart. And it just, and now it all looks like it's happening like in real time. Yeah. God. I mean, the, the I level of about that thought uh, is absolutely incredible. So we could do the same thing, right? We could go shoot a scene on a, a 5d like you were saying, and then whatever, pull it in After Effects, do something really amazing, and then upload it back into the 5D, play it back in the LCD, and now it looks like we're watching someone fly or disappear or whatever. Like you can yeah. suddenly in camera pull off a shot that is otherwise much more expensive. <laughs> and it wow. just adds a layer and, of and the coolest thing about that is that you can get away with the, with the special effects not being highbrow. Yeah. Like they can be a little bit bad because you're looking at it from a camera on a camcorder in a tiny little screen that has like blue color everywhere that has like no no saturation at all so really you could get away with a lot more that's such a good point just brilliant just brilliant <laughs> so freaking smart oh, oh my god i'll jump around a little bit more the audio i actually really love the audio in this it's simple stuff it's this basic filmmaking 101 like a lot of ambient noise, right? If we're going to, we're going into an office, he's it's probably like an office that he actually worked at at the time or a buddy's office. And he's like, Hey, for, you know, an hour, can we borrow this corner room? Cool. And yeah, roll audio. I'm sure he captured, you know, wild, wild sounds, or maybe they filmed on a Saturday or something, but okay. We're in an office. So we're going to have low ambient noise, maybe some paperwork, but more, more than anything, he was just, there's a phone ringing in the background. Like, and now it's an yeah. office. <laughs> Suddenly, there you are. It's an office. Yeah. We're in a science lab. Let's really pump in the cooling system, which maybe he didn't even have to pump that in. Maybe, I'm sure that came for free, but <laughs> but he used it and it sold the location. Yeah. And the, this whole film was pretty dirty. Like, and he played into that. This whole idea of broke engineers fit very well into the the kind of low quality of some of the production design and some of the even the audio, like let's make everything a little bit worse and 
intentional or not, like it didn't hurt the film because of the story that he was telling. It all felt normal. It felt natural in that environment and that we were kind of flies observing. And yeah, and just to briefly jump back into what you were talking about earlier, every scene he had to he had to absolutely like meticulously say, what shot is this going to be? Okay, we're going to be walking down the hall. Great. And but at the same time, it wasn't ever just completely lazy. It wasn't like we're not going to try for interesting things. There was a, a smart shot where he does this circle dolly move as they're revealing him having a realization of something. He's having a moment, an epiphany. And he uses in the driveway when he's holding the basketball. We do this uh, very nice circle dolly around him. And he said they probably rehearsed that a hundred times, that move. But he, it was very targeted, very specific, and it coalesced very nicely with the writing and story revelation. So he's very highly aware of filmmaking ethos and the idea of capturing the story symbolically with camera movement. And nothing went to waste. And going into some of the story and writing stuff, he did a great job of advancing the story off screen. And so at first we're at the, we're there at the beginning. Right. And we see that they're having to work on this project that they're not really excited about. And then suddenly they're, as people do, you get working on a project and you just get invested in it. And so even though this wasn't their idea, this is what's happening at the table at the beginning. They're sitting around with all these guys and they're, they're even kind of color coded like Abe and Aaron are both in white shirts and the other guys are in like these blue shirts. And that's kind of the teams that we're looking at. We're looking at these two guys versus these two guys, but they're all kind of pulling their money together to and experience because they're all engineers in different ways to let's make something viable and make money finally. And so they're working on this, this other guy's project that they're trying to talk him out of at the table. He's like, Hey, we're still playing by the rules. I want to do my idea. Cool. And so they're in it. They're in the garage and they're trying to figure out some kind of cooling mechanism that's much more cost efficient. And they're just sitting there babbling about, you know, all the mechanics of it. And they're even talking over the head of the guys who the guy whose idea it was in the first place. They're already talking Mm -hmm. over his head. (laughs) And then that's when they have this realization. And so the movie is kind of them stealing an idea from someone else on a very high level because this was his idea to work on this project. Something else came out of it, but now they're cutting him out. They're like, yeah, he doesn't even know about that. (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of speaks to, I don't know, that whole environment, I guess. But I, anyway, so after we kind of established that something weird is happening, they started progressing the story off screen. It's not when we're watching it. So instead of both characters and us discovering them, discover something instead one character makes an advancement and then shows the other character. So Aaron, the, the brown headed guy, we'll just, you know, Aaron is brown headed and Abe is the red headed guy. Um, Aaron picks up Abe after, you know, that weird blackout sequence pulls him downstairs and he's like, okay, we can get tacos on the way now, or I can show you, uh, we can get steak afterwards. And he's like, Oh, you figured it out. And so suddenly Aaron is showing Abe. Yeah, here's how this thing is operating now. It's weird. I don't know what's going on. And then we kind of flash forward months. We don't know if that's two months, three months, six months. They don't really say, and that's fine. It doesn't really matter. But sometime within the next couple months, Abe makes an advancement. And now he pulls Aaron in. And the interesting thing is, and this is going to be so loopy. 
I'm going to do my best. But the v- very first time that Abe, that we're watching Abe introduce the time travel mechanic to Aaron, we're not actually seeing that scene as it originally happened. We're already watching. And you can tell based on if Aaron has got the earpiece in or not. And from that very first moment, we're already seeing a duplicate or a, a version of Aaron who's come back in time because he's either mm-hmm. recording it for the first time or he's replaying it for the second or third time. And so one way or another, this is a new version of of this moment. We're seeing a, a, a time travel moment already happening. And this is for the astute, yeah. right? Like if you whatever. And so <laughs> we we start going through and we see him catch up, catch Aaron up on here's what's going on. Like I'm walking him laboriously through all the all the paces and i love this because it's a show me don't tell me rule that he's following like we don't want to hear abe tell hey i've invented time travel no it kind of undersells the effect and we're going to lose the suspension of disbelief instead we have to be shown just like aaron and so it's a great point of exposition for us, the audience, that's told through Aaron's eyes. And that's just another great storytelling effect. And it works so well here because they're engineers. He wants to walk them through the process. And the wrinkles that he adds in the story are what make it so genius. The whole Aspergillus, whatever, Tiberius Kirk, I don't know what, you know, what it's actually <laughs> called. But, but, but it's like, yeah, there's a protein that builds up over time. And so he found just this really brilliant, simple, natural end on how to introduce the, the effects of time travel. Instead of saying we observed it, it's we felt the effects of time travel, um, which is something that you don't see in time travel films, right? They, it's always, you know, I changed something and now I got to change it back. Uh, those kinds mm-hmm. of things, which work in their own elements. But here, this is the indie version of a time travel story. And he just freaking kills it. Um, and so I think generally speaking, the story is trying to build on this idea that they took from their surroundings what was needed and made it something more. And so there's all kinds of things. I, I would say it's probably a little more useful to Google it. There's people who have literally drawn maps and loops because he doesn't give you everything. There's things that happen in this version of the story that the characters themselves don't know what happened. And so we have to start assuming how many times has he been through this loop? How many other loops have there been? And it gets into this whole idea of maybe there's parallel universes that they're creating effectively. Because if Aaron goes back in time and at the beginning of the story, they're accounting for that. They're accounting. They're creating very pure loops, right? They go turn on the machine. They go hang out in a hotel. They wait to the end of the day. Then they get in the machine and then they go back in time nothing is changed. There's no causality issues. They didn't change anything. That's a perfect loop. And then, but what happens if you get in the time machine and then go back in time and knock yourself out and store yourself in an attic (laughs) and that version of you never gets into the time machine. Now -hmm. you've created a whole parallel universe where there's now two of you in this one and there's probably one of you missing somewhere out there. (laughs) Yeah. And so that creates this whole mind bending issue of time loops and causality issues. And at one point, all they know is the very first time they go to test the causality, right? The, the kids are on the the street and they wake him up and he's like, let's Abe has a bright idea. I want to test 
this experience because they kind of brought up this whole grandfather paradox issue with Aaron wants to punch his boss in the face and then go back in time and tell himself to not do it. What does that do? That's kind of the question that is asked. Yeah. And they kind of say, once you put that question out there, you, you have to answer it. Um, and there, the rest of this film is an attempt at trying to answer that or at least discuss it. And so they do, well, they start to, this is where everything really goes off, off the rails because just as they plan to Abe says, okay, we're going to test this. And I'm super paraphrasing because you don't want to hear that scene played back. It's just going to piss you off. But effectively what's happening in this scene is he goes and wakes up Aaron at three in the morning. He's like, Hey, I want to see what happens if I go back in time and prevent those kids from waking me up. And now that guy's going to get into the time machine on schedule and effectively we'll, we'll just see what happens. And as Aaron's like, yeah, okay, we'll, 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 we'll test that out because if that works, then, then Aaron can go back in time and punch his boss in the face. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. And so they are on their way to U-Haul and what do they see? They see Rachel's dad, Mr. Granger, their investor, is waiting outside in the car and it's a version and what they find out because they're like, is that him? I don't know. I think he had more beard growth than what I saw on him earlier today. That can't be that same version of him. And so what do they do? They get on the phone. They call Mr. Granger up who then answers the phone at home. And they're like, then who the hell is that guy? If that's not the Mr. Granger, then there's a loop of him that's gone back in time. And so they go and one way or another, he goes into a coma. That's the part we don't know. Did Aaron knock him out? Did he trip and fall? Was there some time effect issue? We don't know. They don't even try to answer that question. But all they know is now they have a, a, a body of a doppelganger sitting in a coma mm-hmm. upstairs in their bedroom. And this is when they start trying to hash out what happened. Well, I don't know. Something's obviously different. Something's obviously changed. And what you can... Once you know the rest of the movie, you can start to summarize that at one point with the gunman storyline, the gunman probably went back in time, went back in time. But one version of those happened where the gunman kills Rachel and the father's obviously inconsolable. And probably at that point, Aaron shares with him, hey, I can fix this, at which point Mm. the dad goes back in time to try to fix it and I see. Then Aaron goes back again at some point and they lose the thread of where that guy got introduced in the first point. That's interesting because I was I was wondering, I was like, why did they want to stop this guy? Because he didn't he, he didn't hurt anybody. He just yeah. brought the gun. So why is he like so hell bent on going back to stop this guy when he never hurts anybody anyway? Yeah. Like, what's the problem? So he must have. Yeah. Hurt Rachel. He must have hurt Rachel. OK. And I. One thing I I do like is that they identify causality in like a very interesting and understandable way with the cell phone. Mm. When he answers his wife's phone call and she, she calls and he answers and then Abe is like, well, wait a minute, your other version, you know, if she called, would your other version would have answered it? He's like, uh, maybe what happens if there's, the same number with two phones. Do they both ring? I don't know. I guess it's whatever's closer. Is that true? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It just, but it's the whole, it's very easy to understand. It's the whole like, like, Oh no, I shouldn't have answered. 
because my other real self that should be present should have answered. And if I answered instead, then I, did I change something? Is this a new, did I create a new universe? Like, yeah. And then, Ooh. cause there's all there, there are 30 different other very difficult things to understand regarding causality in this movie, but at least they give you one just to introduce you to the idea that even the slightest thing could change everything. Yeah. yeah. It's smart. No, I think you're absolutely right. They, they did their best to bring you along for their ride. And I think the, the nice thing about that is they are never really that far ahead of us. Like there's always at least one character that we can identify with. You never feel like one, both people are, are have lost us in the story. We're always identifying with at least one of the characters, which is smart, which is really smart. The last thing you want is the audience to feel like you're advancing the story without them. And so those, those little moments clutch got to have them. Yeah. And so it was at that point when, after the guy gets, you know, into a coma when Abe is like, okay, it's time to unveil the big daddy. And then he goes up and uh, there's this little quick narration, right? Where Abe prepared, you know, for a really long journey. He basically had to sit in that box for four days to go back in time to before all this stuff started happening. And it feels like it takes place over the course of weeks, but it's only days because they keep reliving the same day. And so it takes a very long time for them to advance in time because one day is yeah. no longer a day is effectively, you know, probably 36 hours. I think he says at one point, and it just takes a lot longer to, to go forward in time. And so Abe goes up there, not knowing Aaron has already discovered his, his fail safe box that's been running since before he told Abe or since before Abe told Aaron about it. And I think the naming convention should probably, you know, get a comment. I think that's both, they're both A's, there's A-A-A-B. I think it's Shane Carew's attempt at, at trying to inform us of who is actually first going back, who's actually got the upper hand, who's actually got more knowledge. Because on the first track through the movie, you might think it's A because Abe is the one who's introducing time travel to, to Aaron. But once you get to the end of the story, you realize that Aaron, from our perspective, the viewer, Aaron was always there all along. And the key to it all is Abe, his last name is Turger, which you can, you know, roll your eyes at this or not, but Turger is uh, regret spelled backwards. And I think it's really appropriate when you factor in the way that the, the time machine works itself. The machine is sending them backwards through time. And this reminds me of the very first time I, I came across Neil deGrasse Tyson was probably around 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. He was doing one of those History Channel or National Geographic Channel shows. And he was talking about when he fell in love with science in the first place was, you know, at, he got obsessed with the idea of time travel because his father passed away. And he was like, I want to see, know if I can build a time machine to go back and, and save my dad or talk to my dad one more time. He came up with the idea that the only way that could ever be possible is if you built a box. And you started this box at whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning. And now that box is effectively a tunnel that as long as it's operating, you know, a year into the future, you could go back a year in time. You can walk into that box and you could go back a year in time by waiting for a year and then getting out of that box. And so I feel pretty sure that 
you know, Shank Rude probably saw the same thing, was inspired by it, or maybe he's just his own fanatic and had thought of that same concept. Everyone has m- the same idea more than once. Uh, but it directly reminded me of that, that whole Neil deGrasse Tyson struggle with time travel. No, I'm pretty sure it was his Amazon delivery boxes. He just saw lying around in 2003. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, oh, I should do something with those Amazon delivery boxes. <laughs> Oh, hey, let's make a movie. <laughs> Just kidding. Didn't exist back then. And so Turger spelled backward as regret. And it's kind of yeah. highlighting the idea that once we get to the end of the story, Abe is obviously very conflicted about everything that's happened. Like he knows that there are multiple copies of Aaron out there. He doesn't know how many. He hopes there's only one extra copy of them out there and that that's that. But the the thing that I love about the ending is we're listening to a phone call. It's not a voicemail. And so the the guy that's making the phone call, that version of Aaron is the same one that got overwhelmed by a very tired time traveling Aaron that he was like, that guy should have been more tired than me. He should have been more exhausted. I should. I was fresh. I just woke up. I should have beat him, but what I didn't underestimate properly was the passion and the drive that that version of me had in him. And so we're listening to his point of view, the guy who gets kicked out of his own life. And now he's going, he's in France, I think, and uh, he's building a new box, right? This whole warehouse of boxes. And it sets up this idea of what is he going to do? But it also, what I find really interesting, and I think is ultimately, whenever you really stop to consider this film, the heartbreaking part of it is... Aaron didn't want his life. He had built a life for himself with a, with a wife and a child, and he didn't value it. He didn't want it at all, and he was only too happy to escape it. And that, I think, is kind of the ultimate tragedy of the film, is this dude who just did not like the life that he had built for himself. And now money got, gave him an opportunity to build something else. And that's maybe kind of commenting on the garage engineer dream like what are these guys really trying to build are they trying to build something to better humanity or just their own escape hatch i don't know interesting um there's a lot i because of how you know messy and tangled the story is i think there's a lot of things you could walk away from it and discuss and that's kind of you know a very satisfying aspect to the film i don't know so one one thing that i want to bring up do you have more notes yep no perfect (laughs) i'm out perfect segue One thing that I want to bring up that I, I we've talked about before on the podcast a lot and that I'm a big proponent of, I think you are too, is that in indie filmmaking and, and you know, shit, if you're the, the engineer in a garage, right? If, if you're the person building a studio in your backyard, if you're a, whatever it is that you do, I, I think that, that it's important to remember and even for Shank Ruth, even for Aaron. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. no, I want to say Aaron, mm. Aaron should have remembered that, that it's not, it's not the destination. It's the journey, right? It's the, I'm going to, I, I'm going to love this, this thing I'm building in my backyard because I built it right. Because I, I went through this process, this, this whole thing of, learning about it of doing it executing it and finishing it right it's the it's the same thing with a film and that's one of the things that i think so aaron didn't get it 
Aaron didn't get that, that, and uh, maybe even, you know, you could argue maybe Steve Jobs didn't necessarily get it, but uh, actually I think Steve Jobs would get it, you know, does get it. Mm. It's, it's the, it's the process of building something that was never built before, right? It's the, it's the, everything from the ideation to the planning, to the prep, to the, to the work, and then the completion. It's not the finished thing because the finished thing is just a thing. And yes, it could make you a lot of money. It could change your life. And that's all that's good. But I think that I really would argue that most people that make a lot of money doing something would say the happiest they were was in that garage, building it in the first place, coming up with that creative outlet, having that creative outlet and having a, a, the drive. um, Well, yeah. And that, and that moment of clarity of Mm. like, Oh, I, that's it. I figured it out. Right. You know, if I'm writing a song and, and, and I can't get a fucking line and I'm like, God dang it. I just want to get that line. There it is. It's that moment that keeps me coming back to write more. It's, you know, that moment in the garage when you, when this machine started working, right? It's like, oh, you're constantly, continually trying to chase that moment. And I think one of the things that, so Aaron didn't get that, but Shane Carruth did. Oh, so we need to, we need to extend this longer and you can kind of see me say cut, fuck it, putting it in. You know what I mean? Like, like it was the whole the whole process of making it and just putting it out. Here you go. Done. Here you go, world. And 17 years later, we're talking about this movie. And it's one of your favorites. It's unbelievable in so many ways. I wouldn't call it my favorite, but I will say it is one of the most inspiring yeah. things that I've I've seen in a very long time. And it just makes me it makes me just want to create, man just to, to do something and to remember that like, like we are lucky. We're so lucky that not only do we have the, the creative drive, but we have the ability and we have the, the, the resources to do what, what it is that we want to do. You're doing it right now. You're writing a film right now. You made the decision this year. You said, I'm going to write a feature film and you're doing it. And that's awesome. There shouldn't be any reason why you don't, right? And the thing is that once it's done, it's done. You just let it go. You put it out in the world and say, it's not mine anymore. You can have it, world. And then you go on to the next thing. And and I did that wrong myself for so long. I would hold on to songs and to records that I would make and just be so proud of it. Instead of just like, just... I, I just took myself too seriously. I took my music too seriously and just let it go and, and just be proud of it and then move on and make something else. Right. Yeah. Cause you got more in you than just that album or just this, this movie or the last short that you made, you know, fuck it. Like, boom, there it is. Let it out. Gone. Okay. What's next? Let's do it. And, and I think that they just, that's so inspiring that, that he did that, that all of these people in this film, they just did that. They're just like, let's make a movie at seven grand. What, what can we do for $7,000? Oh, let's make a sci-fi film. Like what? <laughs> what the hell? Okay. How are we going to do that? Well, we can do some tricks like this and that, and, and just be brilliant about it. Just be brilliant. So cool. 
So cool. It's really amazing. I mean, that's such a good point. In so many ways, like he didn't know how to, he would take a camera. He said, I I think he took slide film to shoot what basically a storyboard of every shot that he wanted. And he effectively went and, and I forget who he talked to, but got some advice and says, how do I do this in video? (laughs) That was basically what he did. He's like, I know the shot that I want. I don't, I don't, what do I need to do? And so there's times whenever I'm pretty sure he's shooting tungsten balanced film in the daylight instead of daylight balanced film. And it does, it changes the color (laughs) wildly. Yeah. But, But to your point, it was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's make a movie. And the amazing thing is it was celebrated, not, for its flaws, but for its ambition. That's yeah. incredible. Like, wow. I think you're absolutely right. There's nothing to lose. There's nothing. And that was, I think for me, you know, hoping to, to, to make something that I took away from this. It was this attitude of why not this line. And I think as, as we're talking about it, I think to some degree, this movie was, was a bit of a, a metaphor for its for itself for its own creation right because shane caruth took from his surroundings what was needed and made something more from it and that's definitely that's creation in and of itself you know it's finding it out man figuring it out and just saying whatever what will be will be but at least i did it like he made the bare minimum requirements for a movie in terms of runtime, I think 75 minutes is the minimum. And he's in that like 77. <laughs> like, yeah. Absolute. Like, I'm going to work it out. Come what may. And it didn't matter. Like, I watched this for the first time in awe. Not just because of the backstory. I don't even think I knew the backstory. I bought this right after watching the Spirit Awards. I literally went on Amazon and was like, it might've been my first Amazon purchase. I could probably go and look, but I just bought it. And I was like, whatever, just send it to me. And I, same copy that I still own. And I sat down and watched it with my brother. It was actually brutal. I watched it. I was living in a house with seven other dudes at the time. And cool. And they were all running around yelling as me and my brother are sitting on the couch trying to, you know, watch this movie with these low talking engineers. And we're like, I don't know what's happening. I don't either. I can't stop. <laughs> like it's, it's an amazing experience. And I was an absolute awe before I even found out, you know, all the backstory to the movie. I loved it still. And yeah, there's, it's been really fun. Cause I've watched it three times in the last 24 hours. And the first oh my time God. I was taking notes the first time and I was like, I'm missing so much. And so I had to, you know, finish my notes, which were garbage, as you can all tell, and just sit and watch the movie and like enjoy it. Like, oh, that's right. That's what's happening. And then I watched it again right before, you know, we came on to do the episode and I was like, oh, that's right. And the thing started finally clicking. It is still with all its bumps and uglies, like still a really impressive and fun film to just sit and watch. And what a I genius. mean, in in I I I venture to to say that it's better because of the flaws i mean can you imagine if you would have made a perfect movie for seven thousand dollars that'd be a little boring yeah i mean this is much more interesting it's much you know why because it's freeing yeah because he took the rules and he he didn't know them and it's it's like Jimi hendrix picking up a guitar 
oh, all I have is a right-handed guitar, but I'm left-handed, so I'm just going to play it anyway. And that's how he learned, right? You don't know the rules. You don't know you're not supposed to play that guitar that way. So you just, you know what I mean? So you just play. It's the same thing. He doesn't know the rules of filmmaking. He doesn't know the rules of tungsten balanced <laughs> film, you know, like whatever. We're just going to shoot. Oh, it looks pretty yellow. All right. Well, so it goes. That's what we, that's what we got. Uh, because he bought you, you know? short ends. Uh, so with film stock, the big boys will shoot, you know, a thousand feet of film and only use 700 feet and then basically sell it back on the cheap, back to the labs, back to Kodak or whoever really. Or maybe they just don't sell it back. They just send it in for development. The lab cuts off the the extra 300 feet and they sell that for cheap and they call that a short end. And so he didn't buy entire fresh rolls. He shot on probably like 30 different short ends. And so the fun thing about film is each roll of film is a little specific and different from the next. Not yeah. usually by wide margins, but you know enough and he bought those things up and it was like i'm gonna make a movie so i mean it leads to a question it leads to a question now look is is it better like if you can't if you know the difference and can make the decision to shoot tungsten balanced film inside rather than outside you probably should do that right right maybe maybe yeah yeah but you know, it leads to the question of if you're an indie filmmaker and you're trying to make something and all you've got is tungsten balanced film and you've got to use it to do an outside shot. Do you say, fuck it and just do it? Or do you say, oh, man, we're going to have to push a week so that I can save up some more money or two weeks so I can save up more money to buy another another short end or whatever? No, you know, like you just do it. Just do it like one of my favorite guys that I follow a lot is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I feel like that guy just has, you know, say what you will about the guy and about either his past or, you know, his political leanings or whatever, but he has done literally everything a human being can do in your life and been successful at all of it. And so he has like all of these great sayings and quotes that, that just are timeless. Right. And, and that's one thing that he, he talks about. He says, he says, never have a plan B because plan B stops plan A from happening wow. because you have plan B. So don't have a plan B. You just go do it. And whatever it is that you got to do to get it done, you get it done. I mean, like, you know, um, I don't know what Shane Carruth has done since. But the point isn't isn't that, oh, it gave him a big film career. The point is, is that he made this thing that like now, 17 years later, you and I are talking about. How cool is that, man? Now, if he would have waited two weeks here and two weeks there to get the right film, you know, would that still have, would we still be sitting here talking about it? I don't know. Created a new alternate universe. Who knows? <laughs> but, but I think the point is, is, is that I guess my question is because we know the difference, uh, you, uh, you in particular, you know, the difference, where is the line to say, no, you know what? I want to follow that rule or. Mm. I don't want to follow the rule. I'm, we're just going to go, you know, cause there probably is a line. Like he didn't have a line because he didn't know any rules and that's fine. You can, you can play ignorance when you are ignorant, but when you're not ignorant, you know, where is the line? Do you, do you know what I'm, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Where is the line to actually ask that question of, 
should I follow that rule or should I just go and, and make this, you know, the best I can with what I have? Like, I don't know. That's such a good question. And I feel like it's a very Jaws kind of question and it's the quintessential filmmaker question because I've been really lucky with all my productions. I've never had a really big issue. Like I've never rained out a shot or whatever, lost a camera lens or anything like that or whatever. My actor got sick and couldn't come in today. Now I got to shoot this scene with what I got or whatever. I've been super, super fortunate, but not everyone has. And you can look at whether it's Star Wars or Jaws and we'll, we'll be tackling those in the, in the coming weeks. But where do you draw that line? And I think it comes down to, you know, to quote a very genius guy, both. Maybe it's both. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think you, <laughs> I think you you work it on the day. You're like, you know what? We're here. We're going to grab it. We're going to make yeah. it work. And if it doesn't work, then you can still come back. I, I, I like your man. I think that's such a good point. You know, plan B will stall plan a maybe not every time but too many times you don't want to know you don't want to find out when it did right uh, right just get it and i think that's i think i I think the bigger the the bigger plan a is the the more important it is to not have a plan b Mm -hmm. that's what that means it's like you know it's not like hey i'm going to go to the store and if they don't have if they don't have whole milk i'm going to get two percent well I mean, plan B to like, who gives a shit about that? Like that doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. But if it's, if it's like, I'm going to be a a big filmmaker or if not, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have this, this job on the side just in case to make some extra money. So there's a famous Ridley Scott scene where a thing bursts out of another guy's uh, character's chest. And I was listening to an interview with Ridley Scott with the uh, the LA Times film critic and they were just kind of going through his career and they talked about uh, specifically you know one film and Ridley Scott was saying man you know what we only had that rig to go once once that was done it was done and we called action started rolling and the the effect wasn't working we were trying to punch through this guy's chest uh, you know it's not his literal chest but the makeup and the actors hadn't seen the scene so they didn't know exactly what was going to happen they knew you know story wise what was going to happen but they didn't know the effect and so the the effect wasn't working and scott was like cut 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 like he he cut right there in the moment he's like this isn't work uh and this was the kind of scene where it was just like, once we go, we go. And he made sure everyone was aware they're rolling, whatever, three, four cameras. Uh, and he's like, once we go, we go. And now he's calling cut, like trying to not ruin the shot and also make it work. It. And so he went in and he scored the shirt a little bit to, to, to help the, the effect. And he's like, I don't know if this is going to work. And, you know, his DP is looking at him like, what the hell are we about to do? He's like, <laughs> so let's see what happens. Roll action again. And, you know, the, the thing bursts and blood sprays everywhere. Because here was the thing. He's like, I knew once the scene happened, we weren't going to be able to clean up the set and do another take. Blood was going to be everywhere. It was going to be everywhere. And so we really needed to get it this first time around. And of course, like you said, man, there was no plan B. It was like, yeah, <laughs> we go, we go. And they, it's it. It's, you know, cinema history, obviously. But yeah. I, I think you're right, man. I think there is a lot to be said. And obviously build contingencies where you can. But, you know, don't spend all your time fretting, I think, is the, the lesson for me, I'll say. 
and to to make the most of what you can. And I feel like that's all mm. we've done in all of our projects, right? Whether we were yeah. shooting ridiculous music videos in the woods or three music videos in a weekend um, or yeah. Kona videos, like your Iron Man video, I, you know, still yeah. one of my favorite things. Yeah, we just hey here's what we got let's just play with it like have an idea and i think that's one of my strongest suits i don't know if this would work whenever i go in to make a film but i'm pretty loose with my i have a very specific shot list and at the same time i keep it loose for magic on set i know here's the kind of shot that i want here's the tools that i'm going to need to execute it but i don't i'm not a big believer in storyboards like i don't want to see a storyboard i want to walk into the set without some preconceived specific notion of what a frame is going to look like. I know what I want in the shot in my head. And so kind of like the show, man, I go over my shot list a lot. And before I walk on set and, you know, I'm reading the script, I'm looking through my shot list and I'm saying, I'm putting those puzzle pieces together in my head because even though I can't see, I can't remember someone's face. I can't close my eyes and say, here's what Todd looks like at all. Like you're just a fucking mannequin in my mind, but I can look, I can close my eyes and I can see edits very crystal clear in my head. I can see what one shot is going to do to the next shot. And whenever I see in my head, whenever I've connected those two shots with, with my camera, I can move on and feel very, very good until the end of the day when we wrap and I'm, and you look at me and you say, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't think we got it. <laughs> yeah, always, yeah, always, always. I'm always like, okay, it was out. a good day. It was a good day. Yeah. Uh, but that's awesome, man. So much, man. Primer, Shankaroo, thank you. I'd love to have him on someday and talk about it. And to, to answer your, your non-question, he made upstream color after this. And I actually oh, yeah, got right. to audition for it. You know, I, cool. I drove to Dallas and I was having a really bad week that week. I was not getting sleep and like at all, I was getting maybe two hours of sleep a night for whatever. I just chronic insomnia throughout my life. And I knew I had this audition coming up and that's not what kept me up. But I knew that if I didn't, once I went to sleep, I needed to stay asleep. And so I operated, this is at our old job, Demand Media. I operated that on my own, basically. I kind of ran my own department, department more or less. And no one ever came looking for me. No one ever gave a crap what I was doing until the day of this audition. I had committed. I turned off my phone, turned off my alarms. I was like, I don't care what time I fall asleep. Once I fall asleep, I'm staying asleep blacked out my windows because I hadn't slept all week. And I was just really starting to wear myself out. Like I was very short. My brain was scattered. It was just very frustrating. And it was starting to drive me a little insane, to be honest. And so I just committed. And whenever I finally woke up, I went to sleep, stayed asleep for good. And, you know, I think I got six or seven hours that night, which was enough for me at the time. And I wake up and like my phone had been blowing up my my boss who was like one step below the uh, the CEO in this billion dollar company is trying to call me and I'm getting emails from one of my coworkers in LA Yuri and he's like hey where are you you know Steven's freaking out and I'm like y'all guys never call or you know email me yeah. this is the day <laughs> and so I apologize you know and I felt horrible and I don't even think it was a big deal that what they were needing they were just I think a little worried about me because I'm also a very on person like if you reach out to me it's 
pretty common. I'll respond within, you know, minutes. And for me to yeah. not respond, probably worried them a little bit. But I was like, hey, yeah, sorry, guys. You know, I just I haven't slept at all this week. Blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, crap. OK, well, thanks. You know, just let us know, you know, which is reasonable. And I was like, yeah, and here's what I got going on today. I'm auditioning. And so it was fun. I got to audition for, you know, Shane Carruth, which was to this day still my favorite audition or at least my, you know, most exciting audition. I don't usually get to audition for yeah. you know feature films of someone that i'm absolutely obsessed with <laughs> so i know right yeah, yeah. so it's like you, you would have had to have said okay you can audition for shank ruth and then maybe christopher nolan and that would have had to have been the only next level of like excitement beyond that oh uh, wow that's cool the time yeah so big big deal to me yeah but yeah so anyway that's my random that's cool i'm thinking it was for one, one degree shank ruth film. well let well, if Shane, if, if Shane, if you're listening, we'd yeah. love to have you on the show. Yeah, I, I, I'll see if I can reach out. I think our buddy Ryan knows him. Oh, okay. Yeah, so cool. That would be really cool, and he can come educate us on everything that's happened. I know he had a film that I was excited about called Topiary, a Topiary that was, you know, in the works and couldn't get funding. So it's crazy. Even though at this point in the industry, he is Shane Carruth. Like that's a name. If if you're in the industry, that you know. And he still mm -hmm. he still has problems getting funding. So I'd love to hear about his experiences there and obviously making primer and whatever else he would want to talk about. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. I'd love that. <laughs> Dang. Uh, so well, what are we doing next week? So next week, I thought we could do Ladybird, which yeah, it's to great. me is Greta Gerwig's. I think she did a movie, she co-directed a movie before this, but to me, that's her her debut film. So I want to look at Lady Bird and see, you know, what can we take away as a budding director can, can learn from that. So yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at Lady Bird with Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so stay tuned for that. What are you going to recommend this week? This week I'm, I'm going to recommend another indie film that's a little older and will also melt your brain a little bit Ooh. because why not? That's what that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend Donnie Darko from 2001. It has a very young Jake Gyllenhaal in it. And I think Jenna Malone, Maloney, whatever. And she's great in it too. Um, it's it's very interesting film. I don't know how to explain anything in it. So just it's, go watch it. Yeah. You want another <laughs> mind bender. That's a great recommendation. Richard Kelly is also from Austin and as is Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think his sister is even in it, Maggie Gyllenhaal. And Oh yeah. Right. She's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She's absolutely incredible. I mean, they, they're both wildly talented. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. And it's funny, man. I was actually, was it today or yesterday? It was looking up stills of Donnie Darko. <laughs> what? It's so random. Uh, That's I was, crazy. I was looking for one of our faux sponsors and I was like, oh, I could make it the movie theater that they went to the and, and Donnie Darko. And I thought it would be perfect for oh. this episode. And so I couldn't oh, quite awesome. make it out from the from the frame. And so I just skipped it <laughs> anyway. That's cool. That's pretty cool synchronicity there. Nice. I I kind of struggle with this one. I don't know how to piggyback. I mean, you you beat me this week for sure. Ah, uh, Waterburger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna recommend another micro budget film called Paranormal Activity. Yeah. I think if you've never seen it, I know you to some degree need to appreciate you know scary films. I think for whatever it's fifteen thousand dollar budget or whatever it is. They did an absolutely incredible job. It's 
one of the most effective horror films like I've, I've seen. It will just get to you. It's very patient storytelling. It's very smart effects. And for nickels, like it's just incredibly cheaply made, but with a lot of expertise of the same style, I feel like that you see in Shanker yeah. Ruth, like just very intelligent and witty filmmaking. So that's good. Yeah, that's good. I don't know if I out Whataburgered you, man. That's a really good suggestion. Thanks, man. I like it's, it. It's no yeah. Donnie Darko, but <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, nice. Double meat, double cheese, <laughs> bacon. So don't forget lettuce, to tomato, <laughs> and mustard and onion. Grill those onions. onion rings with fries. Ow, Waterburgy. Don't forget anyway, to subscribe, review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Those things really do help. We would really, really appreciate it. I haven't seen a new review pop up since Charlie. So I, I check it every once in a while. Okay. So anybody who wants to drop a review, I will, I don't know, give you a shout out. Like something. Yeah. And like, and like, you know, something, something you think that we, maybe we haven't seen. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe something you think we would hate. Mm. Ooh, that would be interesting but you got to do it in a review you got to leave us a review gotta, yeah exactly exactly for the recommendation you can't have us watching the room part two uh, without like oh my gosh <laughs> that's n- <laughs> please never you know, I make traditionally, that when we do intentionally <sighs> bad films i i traditionally like i've gotten drunk and i've gotten high if we if if we had to do like the room part two, the roomier, I would probably have to like shoot heroin. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> <laughs> it would just get bad. Oh man. Wow. Uh, please don't suggest, yeah. don't make it. And then don't right. suggest we watch it. <laughs> but if you want to yeah, leave a comment yeah. on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash primer. And our quote of the day is from the Wright brothers. If we worked on the assumption that what is accepted as true really is true, then there would be little hope for advancement. I mean, it's that is the the you know the quintessential like mindset of you know anybody who's done anything great. You know, the Wright brothers are perfect. They're the, the perfect people to to make this kind of quote. You know, like a Steve Jobs, a, a Bill Gates, like a, these people that have changed the world when other people said you can't do that you can't go up against ibm you know you you can't the the word can't is hilarious i've always thought it was funny and anytime my kids say when i I say put on your shoes i can't my feet hurt don't say that word i don't even like that word in my house because that limits you you can do anything and especially when someone says you can't do something of course you can and you should do it in their face like right up you know like show them show them how wrong they are while you're doing the thing they said you can't do i mean unless you're gonna hurt somebody you don't want to do that you know what i mean but oh we'll get my shot yes that's that's true yeah (laughs) (laughs) wow but no that's a that's a great quote that that's really inspiring good job stop man i have nothing to add Oh, cool. Well, I waterburgered you again. There we go. (laughs) Just kidding. Anyway, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, Great quote to end on, man. Great job selecting that. Make sure to subscribe, review us on iTunes, share us with your friends, tell us what you want us to do, and maybe we'll do it. Uh, Maybe we won't, but 
you know, if you review us, we'll probably do it. So join us next week. We'll be doing Lady Bird. Make sure to watch that before the episode. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Squishy your head.